Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, we catch up with Zucky Munyan. We talk about Silicon Valley's love of DeFi, mixing ideology and pragmatism in the Cosmos Live POS system, the winds of 2019, and what's on the horizon. So this week, we are sitting with Zucky Munyan. Welcome to the show, Zucky. Yeah, great to be here. Big fan. We also have Frederick. Hello, hello. Zaki is head of research at Tendermint, and I would say is an active member of the Cosmos ecosystem, but he's also involved in a lot of other ecosystems, and I hope that in this interview we get to kind of dig into, yeah, what you're working on, what you're looking at, what you're interested in. Yeah, I've always been sort of like polymath contributor in the space, Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm happy to talk about everything Cosmos included, but, you know. Uh, hopefully this will just be a fun discussion of kind of close out the year. Cool. So I've known you for some time, actually. I think we must have met at least over a year ago. I've seen you at conferences. And yet I realized when having you on the show, I don't actually know that much about your background story, like where you come from. So tell me a little bit about like what, what got you into this? What were you doing before? Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's do a little bit of my story. So I come from, um, like a serial entrepreneur, Silicon Valley family. So my, my father came from India in 67. He was a professor. Then he worked for the government for a little while. And then he started doing startups in like my parents' garage the year I was born. So I've just sort of always been around like new stuff. You know, like some of my dad's bigger successes were as he built the first digital gene sequencing company. He's done so he's he he was very successful. He has been very successful um, with with doing startups. And so you know, like startups, VC, all of this stuff is like very familiar to me. I grew up around it. So like grew up in Silicon Valley, went to the University of Pennsylvania because I wanted to get like far far away from that and experience something new. Opposite coast, totally different scene. Yeah, totally different place, totally different scene. Didn't do anything technical, really, like or traditionally technical in college. I did a major the University of Pennsylvania has called history of science, which is basically you study the history of scientific topics, but you could also take random technical classes in basically an order that you made up. And all that basically got me good at is reading papers and teaching myself things. Um, which is then basically the theme for the rest of my life. So then after I graduated from Penn, my dad had been spending a lot of time doing startups in India. Um, Mm. And so I actually went and I lived in India and I helped out my dad with a bunch of different things. And I decided to teach myself how to program. So I taught myself how to program. Um, And then I was essentially product manager on one of my dad's companies for uh, on like their core product for almost seven years, almost seven years. So for seven years, I was doing like lasers, like fluorescence measurement, biology, firmware, FPGAs, like all of that kind of stuff. That, that's a pretty long time to be at one place in, in startup world. Yeah, it was a really long time. 
actually the technology is still around. My dad is still bothering me for tech support um, because there's a certain amount of that stack that I'm the only person on earth who knows how it works. But yeah, so that was a long time and I was getting really bored in sort of 2012. I was kind of trying to figure out, you know, something new to get into. I was kind of looking for a hobby and I started to realize that like, I had this insight, which was I write terrible code. Like I kind of had like appreciated after like six, seven years of being a full-time software developer that like everything I build was terrible. But then I realized that the entire world runs on software written by people who are on the whole less skilled than I am. Um, and so the whole world is filled of and like runs on terrible software. And so I got really interested in what, what, what's going to be imported in a world built out of terrible software. And so that got me to cryptography and distributed systems. And I started learning about those things. In 2013, after the Snowden revelations, I founded a civil liberties organization. And through that civil liberties organization, I met a lot of the people in like the Bay Area cryptography scene who also were working, many of them who were working on Bitcoin. Um, so then I learned what Bitcoin was. Um, pretty much like my main goal for like 2013 to sort of 2017, 2018 was to learn enough cryptography that I would have like know everything somebody with a PhD knew in cryptography, with, but like not actually getting a PhD. And so I would read like one paper a night basically for like that entire period of time. Along the way, I co-founded SkewChain, which was an enterprise blockchain startup. I met Jay. I used to talk to Vitalik and Vlad. Like, like Vitalik and, so like SkewChain, we had a conference in our office um, called Crypto Economicon. So back in the, old, in the old days of like 2014, 2015, there were no Telegram groups. So we had a Google group um, and it had like Vitalik, Vlad, Nick Zabo bunch of other people on it and we decided to have a conference for the google group and so like a whole bunch of us got together it was where jay and ethan first met each other and founded decided to go off and found tendermint um it's where vitalik first learned about bft um it's uh it was like it's where vlad started thinking about proof of stake like it turned out to be like a highly influential event in all of our lives um so yeah so Kind of like went through a whole bunch of stuff, helped, uh, uh, got real frustrated with sharding research in 2017, helped, uh, uh, was like helping out on Definity, Zcash, Cosmos, a lot of these things, um, helped out a little bit on Tezos around the, the crowd tail. Uh, I've been friends with all these people. They like, there was just this like small little community in Palo Alto of people, especially people who didn't work on Bitcoin. Um, so we all knew each other. And all of that sort of mushroomed over the course of 2017, 2018 into what I currently do. And what do you currently do? So like 2018, I did 2018 in the first quarter of 2019, I did what we called launch, which was I was basically responsible for make, getting the Cosmos Hub to launch. Um, so that touched everything in the organization. Are you a pro were you like a project manager there or was it like a that's what a, that's, doing that's launch. <laughs> so I invented incentivized test nets. I did all most of the core regulatory work to actually get the thing up and running. Okay. I figured out basically how to QA like this distributed system. So like I built this whole mechanism. I created the validator market. But like, okay, but what is your, like, so there's Jay and Ethan who are the founders of the Tendermint 
company. They founders Tenderbank. They founded Cosmos. They founded Cosmos. When did you join Tenderman? Like, were you, you sort of mentioned that you were there at the beginning when they met, but like, were you an early person in it? No. Or? Okay. So I was there when they met, but I already had my own startup. Um, okay. When I, when Jay first showed me Tenderman, I was like, this is really cool. It's going to take five years before anyone really uses this. And I was right. So I was the first person to donate to the Interchain Foundation's crowdfund and like the Interchain Foundation. But I was also just like busy with a bunch of other stuff. I only really started getting full time involved in Cosmos like February. So while I was doing all of this, I was technically a part time employee of Tendermint. Okay. Because I was also running a thing called the Trusted IoT Alliance. I also created a validator mm. business. I do a lot of things. Like this is a theme. Sounds like it. <laughs> uh, and so I actually only became full time at Tendermint after launch. Okay, which was like a year ago. March 2019. Oh, less than a year ago. Yeah. Holy moly. It's only been, really? It's It was March 2019? Yep, wow. March 13th. Lucky Crazy. day. Understood. So you were always related to it, always sort of connected to the group, but only really focused on it like in the last, what is it, eight months? Yeah. Cool. How does it feel? Um it's it's a fun it's a fun journey like you know a lot of people frequently ask like why i picked cosmos in in uh 2018 um as like the project i wanted to focus on certainly i had a, there was a certain amount of economic alignment there but that wasn't the only factor in that decision every other you know you, you name large blockchain project that existed back then most of them were trying to convince me to like pay most attention to their thing I wanted to prove that a certain set of things could be done. And I felt like I got to prove that in 2019. There are a lot of people, especially a lot of my like uh, Bitcoin core dev friends used to say things like decentralized proof of stake network starts for impossible. And I'm like, no, I think that's possible. I can do it. They used to, you know, like a permissionless BFT network was just assumed to be impossible. It was just assumed that they would halt. And turns out they don't. And it's been, a, it's it like, it's a, a lot of this is like a fun journey for me. I do think that there's like a transition in where the journey I'm in. Sort of like my first journey was like, learn enough about this stuff to be an expert. Then put all that expertise to work doing things that had never been done before. Now I'm basically primarily a manager. Okay. Like I just like, I manage people. I do a lot. I spend a lot of my time like dealing with like strategy, budgeting, HR, and only occasionally pop into like pop up at conferences and give talks and, or like contribute to research and stuff like that. But these are not, this is probably not going to be like where I make most of my contribution in the future. Most of my contribution in the future is just going to be like dealing with all of the organizational overhead of weird blockchain things. Are you feeling awesome about this? Or are you feeling discouraged? The organizational stuff can be very draining. So it's, it's a, it's necessary. Yeah. Like it's necessary to like scale all of this and to get to the next level to do all of this organization thing. I'm also like very like enthused about like the level of personal growth um, that this requires. It's, it's continuously challenging, but I like, I like the nature of this. I like that we have real things and like real stakes to, to like actually deal with now that this isn't just all like a little 
theoretical exercise that we are just that like we used to sit around Jay's kitchen table and talk about. Like mm. it's real, it's global. It like there's real scale and real stakes. There's geopolitical significance. And so like we actually have to deal with all this stuff now. What other so other than Cosmos though, you are involved in some other projects, right? Like I've heard something are you connected to the near guys or i'm so right now i'm mostly just friendly with the near people okay uh we don't have any sort of actual relationship uh inclusion hasn't jumped in and run a validator on their network or anything yet i find i find near to be an interesting experiment uh it's sort of like an interesting uh counterfactual experiment and that's mostly how i think about near i think of them as a counterfactual experiment i think they're an interesting experiment in basically just taking all of the good ideas in the space and trying to put them all together in one thing and see if it works there is this like what they're an experiment in is tendermint is not a traditional silicon valley startup uh parody is not a traditional silicon valley startup not only is it not in the silicon valley but it's not structured like one you know, Tezos, all of these, the Ethereum Foundation, all of these things are not like they were, their founders are basically ideologues. They're like are committed to this like vision of decentralization and autonomy. And there's actually a lot of like overhead that I deal with on a day to day basis um, from trying to reconcile the needs of building a technology uh, on top of like something that's like consistent with our values and ideology. So now you have experiments like near, which like largely don't care about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're they're just like we are gonna take capital and turn it into code, and we are people who who code really fast, who are good at getting to MVP, who can pick up and understand everything in the space really fast. What do you think it's gonna work? <laughs> Their code is very cowboy. Like this is the main piece of feedback that I give a lot of projects in this space is what we learned in the process of launching the cosmos hub is that you have to be very slow, like, like optimizing for speed and features is probably a way not to like succeed. Like you have to spend a lot more time making your code understandable, making the system understandable, building the tooling so that people can figure out what's going on in the system and like what's going wrong when it goes wrong to like actually get people to feel like they are members and own the system. If your system is just like this giant, as fast as you can coded opaque process, you aren't going to build this like organic community of people who like are invested in and understand your technology. I think this is a great point that SF is changing so much and SF is becoming the the center of blockchain tech. But what I worry about with that is, I mean, you, you've been in, in startup world, you know what investors do to companies and it's not nice. <laughs> like it doesn't usually doesn't work out well. And if you have investor pressure in an in a, an environment like this, you know, I, I feel like decentralization is the first thing to go out the window. I mean, vision and ideology is the first thing to go out the window. I think decentralization is definitely a weak point in a lot of the it's kind of it's sort of this interesting point of view, which is like like every one of their investors wants them wants decentralization but you have to realize that you have to think of this from the point of view of an investor and an asset allocator 
like what's going on in San Francisco, which is if you want to take a bet on decentralized focused projects, you can buy, you know, Bitcoin, ETH, Zek, Atoms, et cetera, and get exposure to that world. So, but like, what if all of these ideologues are going to be eventually just outcompeted by a bunch of like nimble tech startup, like more traditional tech startups with a bunch of people in one room just banging out code all day? Because that's the p- part of the point, right? Where, uh, as you were just saying, that I mean, to to have a successful community, you actually have to have the community engaged. The community has to build tools. The community has to like contribute to the space for them to feel engaged. If there's one company doing everything, then there isn't a community. Yep, we kind of for Tendermint very much took like a community, and like for Cosmos has always like really emphasized kind of a community first approach to how we build stuff as much as possible. Uh, And that means we go a lot slower, but that should work out in the long run. You know, I I think these experiments around much more traditional Silicon Valley style companies are going to be interesting. And I'm hoping at, at least they can build stuff I can use. I guess if they stay open source, like a lot of this stuff will be shareable. You'll at least be able to use some of the research or some of the tricks that they put in it. You know, like uh, the near people know that I'm like the minute the stuff actually works, I'm going to fork them to use my fisherman design because they don't want to use my fisherman design for some reason. Is that because that's the question? So you're you're sort of friendly with them, but you also advise them. You give them. Are you like? I don't have any advisor agreement with them. I just okay. I'm just like hanging out, talking talking shop. Hey, you, know, you guys work close, right? I think uh, they told us you were in the same office or something. If you want to understand what, what San Francisco is like right now. Yeah. So there, Tendermint has, we have our main office in the Bay Area is in Berkeley, but we also have a WeWork on second admission. On, on second street is also near protocol. One street over is Coda and Solana. And then Oasis is like, four blocks north and then cello is the weird one and they're like in the mission you know uh bart right away in the mission (laughs) what about but there's also like the chia office where's that in proximity to what you're describing same same neighborhood same neighborhood so those yeah those that's like kind of the landscape of the non-bitcoin silicon valley or not san francisco blockchain scene i guess yeah, and it's all like concentrated in like a couple of blocks. So you all know each other and go to the same yeah. cafes. We all, I mean, we all know each other. We all hang out in each other's offices. We're all like, you know, every single one of those are doing unincentivized test net right now. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly there was some um, influence that spread throughout these groups. And they're all sort of Game of Stakes style test nets. Yeah. They're even calling it that often. Yeah, they're using some variant of Game of Stakes. Which Game of Stakes, for anyone listening, was, I think, first pioneered, it was first pioneered by the Cosmos launch, right? Yep. The Cosmos Hub. Did you, who made that up? Who named that? Me. You did? Did you name it? Yeah. It's a good question. I have to go back through, like, okay. Slack logs to figure out <laughs> if I named it. Okay. You might have named it, maybe not. It's a good name. Yeah, I mean... Th- Sonny was really the one who was like pushing the like S T E A K stake 
versus S T A K E steak meme. Um, and that, that was there for a while. And then we were like, we were like, okay, we need to like, this is not gonna, it's not gonna resonate well if we, we, we go, it's like too inside baseball Mm. to go with the like red meat steak. Let's, let's go back to that San Francisco topic though. So I think what Frederick, you were just outlining was like the dangers of sort of startup Valley, like funding structures. Yeah. And just like the lack of ideology. I think it, like some of the conversations that I have go back to like, you know, I, I talk to some of these teams and, and talk about what they're building or what they want to build. And they go, yeah, when, then we're going to have a MetaMask and we're going to have this infrastructure thing. And I say, have you thought about the centralization risk of everyone running this browser plugin, talking to one server? And they go, well, yeah, but that's what people want. So it's like, that's what we're going to give them. It's like, yeah, but it's not decentralized. And they go, well, people don't care about decentralization. So we're just going to like, it's a better product UX. So we're just going to do this. And I, I can feel that I resonate with that. I also think the same thing sometimes, but at, at the end of the day, like I have the freedom to break away from that and try to do something else where uh, uh, an investor pressured person will just go, no, we have to ship something that, that like will get user accounts that, that, ha- that'll have daily active users and whatever thing we can do to get to daily active users is, is what we're going to do, even if it means centralizing everything on one server. So like, I, there's definitely that vibe. It's certainly not exclusive to San Francisco. It happens in Berlin and everywhere else as well, but, um, more there than anywhere. I feel like. I have a question about like, so I want to stay on this, this SF topic for a second. I think this is a great topic. I've enjoyed it. Totally. It's totally interesting because I think like, so I'm based in Berlin and Frederick's based in Europe, roughly in, in Berlin often. And like, I am a creature of the SF scene. Like, yeah, I know all of the VCs and all of the funds. I go to all of their events. I speak at half of them, like all of their investor conferences. Like, that, this is very much my world. So, like, if okay. you want to know about this world, I can tell you about this world. Yeah. So, what, I, what I'm saying is, like, SF for me is a place I visit. I get to see it a little bit. Uh-huh. I meet people from there coming over to Berlin going, like, oh, my God, it's so nice here. So, <laughs> that's the feedback I get. But I am curious, like, SF, the mentality of SF, do you, do you see, like, is DeFi and the DeFi products that are kind of becoming very popular are those coming out of sf are those coming more out of like new york where do you see those those kind of projects emerging i mean makers in europe right so there's actually some some well that's not see all of those things are becoming like there certainly seems to be some sort of gravitational pull pulling DeFi towards so I actually think there's like I feel like there's two sides to this story on one hand there are a lot of DeFi centric investors in the Silicon Valley um, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of investors who's like sort of explicit investment thesis is like DeFi is the future of global financial services um, hmm. and if you kind of like sort of like zoom all the way out to like why venture capitalists got interested in cryptocurrencies in the first place. It did feel it, it like is a very much 
Silicon Valley money suddenly realizing that they might have a wedge to compete against the dominance of New York um, in the sort of finance and like New York's control of the financial sector. Because every tech company wants to be a bank, but it's never been like every tech company has also gotten no for as the answer whenever they want to become a bank out of Silicon Valley for a long time. Uh, and so like actually tinkering with money has been a thing that like sort of Silicon Valley was like sort of locked out of. Um, and it's like why I think cryptocurrencies are inherently interesting to them on like almost like a hundred year time scale of trying to like wedge this, this power that the New York banks grabbed in the 19, like in the, like the beginning of the 20th century and try and like take it, like take a piece of it for themselves. Wow. So there is a really a dynamic around that. It's, it is a real thing. And I would say we talk more, we like the conversation around like the conversation in investor circles here is just like revolves around DeFi to an extraordinary extent. There's a, a company that started recently. I can't remember the name now, but this started out of YC and they're only like what they're doing is providing credit cards to startups. And oh, yeah. they, so they basically just started by providing credit cards to other companies in their YC batch. Yep. And they're now massively successful. And I saw like a billboard of theirs last time I was there and like they've grown unreasonably fast because it like, why is it hard to get a credit card? Like that's not a thing that I've ever experienced, <laughs> but it's, a, it's apparently a thing. I don't know why, like. The the US is like the country of credit cards as well. So I don't know why it's why it's so hard to get. This is how you do expense management in a US startup. So like we we at at Tendermint, and I hopefully this is probably not gonna like get us hacked, but we use Airbase um for a lot of our expense management, which like lets the finance team sort of dole out very constrained credit card numbers that are like this can spend this many dollars per month um to specific functions and then you can like track expenses really effectively so it's it's mostly that like the back end of cre of like conventional credit cards don't support like startup and small business workflow as oh. well um that a bunch of that a bunch of companies jumped on the opportunity for hmm. like what you want to be able to do is like see all the expenses for your startup flowing in through all the spending that your employees are doing be able to slice it dice it categorize it like figure out, oh, we're spending too much on like superhuman accounts uh, and be like, we should stop doing that. I guess the reason you're mentioning that, Frederick, is this idea of like being the bank again or like being that, taking that role. Yeah. I want to I wanna sort of dig into that idea of like the VCs who would have gone into crypto early. Obviously, like VC, the world of VC is you can spread ideology, but mainly it's make money, right? So... The reason for getting into any blockchain company is, I imagine, to somehow make some sort of gain, financial gain. When you deal, when they're dealing with these like very ideological companies, do you, have you felt like pushback from VCs in the Valley or not pushback, but like complaints? No, um, I would actually say that the VCs in this community are fairly actually aligned on ideology with us, are, are, pretty ideological but you mean like vcs like blockchain vcs blockchain specifically VCs. what has happened yeah. like one of the biggest things that has happened over like the, the course of 2019 is basically 
non-blockchain VCs investing in blockchain are gone. And there are like probably like okay. 10 or 15 blockchain specific firms that now are overwhelmingly dumb that are basically the only people you raise money from. Whereas like during the boom, everybody was sort of throwing money into it. So, but maybe yeah. During 2017, intention. it was like, but during like various, but like before 2017, it was like almost every firm kind of dabbled in blockchain. Now all of these, because of the fact that you're holding like non-traditional assets, like tokens, there's so much specialist knowledge associated with this. And most firms are spinning up specific, like separate either vehicles, like A16Z crypto yeah. that like specifically target and, you know, theoretically have the knowledge base to invest in crypto. Cool. I also think like A16Z crypto's startup school is like a pretty interesting, like, I think we're going to see more and more of the Silicon Valley playbook applied to the projects that are coming out of um, like a lot of the, like assuming stuff like near Solana, Coda, you know, Cello, uh, et cetera, like, you know, get out there and succeed in 2020. You're going to see a lot of Silicon Valley, more Silicon Valley playbook around how you build ecosystems around them start like landing on in the same thing. Do you think that's, do you think that's good? What's your opinion on that? Like you grew up, this is, it's interesting to hear you like you're from that world. You grew up around yes, it. I am completely so, a creature of this world. Yeah. So I wonder what's your, t what's your opinion of it? Like, are you cynical about it? Are you excited? Do you think it's the right way? Like, so I think a bunch of things have gotten harder. It's become like all of this has actually made it really hard to get, for instance, a good token distribution because prior to 2017 or like early, like prior to like late 2017, early 2018, holding a token was not really part of an asset allocation. It was like ideologues held tokens um, and like mm -hmm. missionaries held tokens. And now more and more tokens are held by funds that are just asset allocators. At, at the end of the day. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're never going to be able to recreate the phenomenon of, of people who are as sort of bought in ideologically into the project as people were in the, you know, ETH fundraiser days or even the Cosmos um, fundraiser days. I think that, I think that mm -hmm. is, all, is, is honestly making a lot of things, frankly, a lot harder with the, like the VCs coming into this space, but you know, there's a lot less legal risk for like a founder to like go out and like raise money from a bunch of traditional VCs rather than weird stuff. But, you know, I think a lot mm. of these funds actually probably have a lot of appetite for investing in weirder stuff. And what's, what I think is sort of, uh, interesting is like, we also lack founders with the level of operational organizational regulatory skill to actually deliver anything that weird to market um so it's going to be interesting to see like where does that come from um i'm also kind of hoping for like a resurgence of like anonymously started founded projects i think that's a counterpoint to uh, i mean i completely agree that most blockchain projects aren't started by people who actually can run a company 
<laughs> basically. But uh, I, I kind of hope that that rather than leading to it becoming a world where there are super strong founders and there are like where the project is is just associated with one company and it's like this company's product that it goes in the opposite direction and we just go more completely anonymous kind of way. I don't know. I feel like the critique of 2020 of me is going to be like Zeki is too good at what he does. He's like <laughs> accumulating too much power. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> you sure you want us to keep that on the air? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's get ahead of it. <laughs> okay. Um. I have a question uh, going back to the DeFi idea there. Like DeFi, we talked a little bit about like its origin point and like how it's being funded, how it's sought after on a funding front. But like, let's talk a little bit about like the concepts of DeFi and some of the ideas that are coming out in that space. Because I think that there's, I mean, recently there's been a lot of kind of interesting research in into how some of the DeFi products that sit on on top of these networks could potentially hurt the networks themselves. Um, I don't know if you saw Tarun's recent piece on like yeah. derivative markets or post like post staking markets actually potentially hurting the security of a POS system. I don't know if I've worded that exactly correctly, but um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think of all of that, given your role, given where you sit. Oh, like the idea of what Cosmos was for that like existed in my mind back in 2016 was like what we now call DeFi. Okay. Like this is like what I thought it was for. But I also think that there's like there's a lot of challenges around governance basically um with DeFi that like we still haven't really dug into. I think um you know this recent article I think like yesterday or the day before sort of calling out the governance vulnerabilities that existed within the maker contracts for instance. I would say that in my mind, every single existing stablecoin um, has a regulatory surface area that is incompatible with widespread adoption. Hmm. So these things work when no one uses them, but if someone start, if people actually start to use them at scale in the West, the regulatory pressure on them would be not regulatory pressure that they would uh, be easily able to manage. And I think, like. Libra, like, just like mm. walked right into that, like, because they were like, "Yeah, you know, we're fine with something like, you know, we're fine with a bunch of these crazy experiments working, existing on a regulatory regulatory scale. If like a thousand people use them, but like, if you want to deploy them to two billion yeah. people, we have questions. Hmm. <laughs> I think there's a bunch of interesting, really challenges here, which is like, you know, a lot of the DeFi development is in the Bay Area right now, but obviously the mm -hmm. DeFi users are not going to be here. Um, and I think, I think that's like one of the things that's cool about Celo is at least they kind of seem to like understand that like, sure, you have like tech and protocol development in San Francisco and there's advantages to that, but like you kind of got to go to the global South if you want to go mm -hmm. find your DeFi user base. Um, DeFi mostly doesn't solve problems for Americans. What do you think about the idea that DeFi could actually threaten some of the security models, though? What I would say is, this is not a surprise to anyone who's um, who's been working on protocol development here for a while. Um, I think the question has always been, 
um, how much do you fight this? Um, so we like, for instance, it's not an accident that like the core recommendation of, um, of Tarun's paper, which is variable reward rates that re that like track some sort of metric, like amount staked and like are going to be good things. If you want to like approach a target of, um, uh, uh, like have a target amount of security. Uh, we, uh, so like we built that in the Cosmos hub protocol, you know, more than a year ago. Um, so, you know, we, we, we thought that was coming. I think if you don't sort of embrace in protocol, the financialization mm -hmm. of staking and your the financialization of your security model, what happens is that this advantages like, uh, loosely regulated big centralized players who will do this anyways um on top of their platforms um you know we're seeing like a bigger deal to me than tarun's paper is binance opening up their cosmos hub validator um and like and binance opening up a bunch of like zero fee validators mm. on a bunch of these networks um i also think that they're going to start securitizing the security model in some way shape or form um pretty quickly so the question is, is do you do these things in protocol and do you have like all of the hooks inside of the protocol to like financialize your security model and like connect your mm -hmm. security model directly with DeFi? Or do you try yeah. to make that difficult and avoid it? Um, I, and I think that act, I think if you try to fight it, you actually encourage centralization because the securitization and the financialization of your security model happens. The other thing that's true and that Tarun would very much agree with is the security model for proof of work also ends up being financialized in very much the mm -hmm. same thing through like hash rate futures and stuff like that have already exist, you know, and like Jeremy Rubin is working on like on-chain hash rate mm -hmm. futures for Bitcoin. For but that isn't, I mean, the proof of work version, I mean, maybe you can help me understand, but like, why is the proof of stake version seemingly more threatening than that proof of work version that you just described? Is it because it's easier? Is it because it's fast? Like, to me, it's like, if the problem's always been there, then it should always be des designed in. And yet, the way I'm understanding this this kind of article, even though people have hinted at it in the past, it's still kind of like news to people. Okay, so I'm going to say something that is somewhat controversial. Um, I think the biggest thing that people should be concerned about is specifically the ethereum 2.0 proof of stake model okay which is the ethereum proof of, ethereum 2.0 proof of stake model is fixed reward rate fixed like no on-chain uh uh like pooling or uh or uh delegation no mechanism for doing staking derivatives built into the system etc and now you have and you have an ecosystem where DeFi is already thriving and this seems to itself to be like a, a particular nexus of challenge and like a particular area to be concerned about. I view the emergence of DeFi interacting with the proof of stake security model for something like Cosmos to be something like a many year in the future is like to be like most likely to be a real problem. Um, like, Staking participation is pretty high. I don't imagine it to like collapse anytime soon. Um, and a lot of the criticism of proof of stake sort of assumes that there's this like 
infinitely liquid counterparty that you can take a bet against. That like, you know, I can lend, you know, $400 million of atoms to someone tomorrow like, on an overnight market. And just there's like, no one is going to take the other side of that bet. There, because like infinite liquidity doesn't exist, proof of stake mostly works. As markets get larger and more liquid, as they get more complex, um, as risk gets more subdivided, we could get into a situation where potentially it could be unexpected to see like security suddenly collapse. Um, and that should be a thing that we should all worry about. But it's not like a near term problem for proof of stake. Proof of stake generally. Yeah. But you just mentioned this. So we kind of, um, one of the things that we definitely wanted to touch on in this episode was a little bit like of a look forward, look back. Yep. Clearly, if you kind of say 2019, what what are the wins of 2019? Was one big win is I think we kind of like really showed in 2019 that like reasonably decentralized hundreds of validator validator sets work and like exist and can like keep a system functioning and can like coordinate enough and like we had can like generate enough surplus in these systems to like pay people to operate mm. nodes which i think is like one of the other like big wins i think the other big win of of, of 2019 is without a doubt all of the zero knowledge proof work and then like specifically like roll-ups and like both the optimistic and the zero knowledge variants of rollups are like knowing that BFT like works in like this like ad hoc setting, knowing that like validators can actually will actually like do this work and like exist, and knowing that and like having like a much broader like zero knowledge proof toolkit and like to a lesser extent, um, you know, all these other like rollup based toolkits. I think these are like clearly the big wins of the year. So what's next? What do you think? What, like, I like the way you've just described this, this sort of year looking back, but what do you see coming up for 2020 then? What do you look forward to? So what we're seeing in the Cosmos ecosystem is like, we maybe have good enough solutions around technical scalability um, in a lot of ways. I actually think most of the big challenges that like our ecosystem is facing are around regulatory and liquidity. And I'm curious to see what will happen. Like one answer to the regulatory scenario is just like all of the innovation moves to Asia. Like all of the user base is just in Asia. And it's just like too difficult to do anything, you know, in the West or in the US, especially Europe seems to be a little bit more friendly. Or we can actually find some sort of path doing stuff in the US. Um, and then the liquidity question also is going to be really interesting to see. Is it like, is something like Interledger or um, something else that like basically makes like exchanges more like APIs um, going to be dominant? Is it going to be something like IBC, which is like a heavier protocol, but like may appeal to a bunch of chains? Or is it going to be, or or is it just going to be like, Binance and Coinbase and like Coinless keep dominating the liquidity conversation. Uh, so mm -hmm. like, you know, I have spent a lot of time in the like the bowels of these technical systems. Um, but like now that we've started to see some like daylight on the real technical limitations, I'm starting to see a lot more of these like sort of broader limitations on 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 the on adoption becoming more significant. Like I would really like to design a stable coin 
that from a regulatory point of view would actually be able to sustain a million users. Uh, mm. I think it's possible. So there, there's a massive amount of regulatory challenge for sure. I mean, I, my yeah. hope would be that, I mean, I think, you know, if we look towards the past and like try to extrapolate, like part of the v, the role a VC plays is help a company create a company, not just like, you know, the, the sort of founders are creating a product, but it's really the VCs that are creating the company and they're solving these regulatory problems to some degree for the company. Maybe that's a model to go forward um, that, that, you know, we kind of try to find some structure in which to relieve the founders from this, you know, pressure because it is a massive task to overcome. I, I think there's a lot of knowledge that's, that's sort of embedded in a lot of the founders that hasn't really about like how to even think about all of these things. But like also the regulatory landscape changes frequently. So it's not like a strategy that worked three years ago is like, you can just take it off the shelf and do the same thing. Hmm. Most of these things end up being like one-offs. I like that idea that you just presented Frederick, this idea that like the VCs would, I've never thought of VC as being like the company builder, like the, the, I know that they, they will offer support. There's sort of a joke that like, if you talk to a VC, the last thing they're going to say is, just let me know how I can help you. Like this is often thrown around, but like true help is in this, in this context, it is that legal regulatory side. And they definitely come from a place like they have more access to really good lawyers and maybe even some of those lobbyists. So it would be interesting to see if that evolves. I would say that we have gotten some good help from, VC. from you know, the investor community and this year. Do you think that do do they fill that role? Do like do you see VCs actually like taking that on in the valley? Um, I'll, so VCs have been really helpful. Like they have some really good tooling in terms of setting up okay. tax structures. Um, like like because Tendermint was like not created by VCs and stuff like that. Like nothing about the way we do our handle our treasury is tax optimized in the slightest way, shape, or form. Um, so they have a lot of, they've done a lot of good work on that front. Um, they haven't, and they definitely are helpful in like general company building stuff, like hiring HR, um, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, like the specific knowledge about how to navigate the regulatory landscape. I've yet to see a VC who has a really good take though. I think, um, obviously, I think Union Square Ventures has been really um, taking a lead on putting a lot of their portfolio companies through like the SEC's A like Reg A plus process, but like to mixed to mixed results, I guess it's like mixed results in 2019 yeah. without it without a doubt. Hmm. Like, not only do we need not only do we need like a regulatory strategy for getting these things into the hands of more people, but like. The, like it has to function in a way where there's like liquidity and like mm. the number goes up. Otherwise no one is going to care. Looking forward. Do you think about UX? Do you think about like, is that, is that your definition of UX would be like high liquidity and, or do you think of it more in the product side? My take right now, right this minute is that the regulatory and liquidity challenges are harder than the UX. Challenges. Okay. And that, if we built a product that had like a very like it's possible on top of the cosmos sdk like people like true story have done it 
build like very mainstream feeling applications um, on top of like the technologies that we have now on top of the Cosmos SDK, on top of Substrate, et cetera. It's like very possible to do this. Um, like you need the right team. It takes about a year. Um, but it's like, it's not what it was in 2015 where this was just like impossible to do. What I, what I think is going to, what is, what is a real challenge for all of these teams is they get, you build a mainstream product with a mainstream UI. Now you're like, how do I get mainstream distribution? And like, you're, you'll just come back and you'll be like, I, nobody knows how to do this yet. Hmm. Like, you know, Coinbase has 30 million ish users. Um, but like, how do you distribute something that's other than Bitcoin to those users? Um, in a way that they can like understand and interact with the system and like, um, you know, get value out of it. And, you know, uh, and, you know, Brian doesn't go to jail. Um, like all of these things are, are a little bit of unknowns right now. So in 2020, what, what do you see for like the validator space? Like, co- like Cosmos, the Cosmos ecosystem, that is sort of the, I guess, would you call it like the longest running POS system so far? Or like, Big one. Tezos is definitely oh yes. Like, um, though I, you know, depends on what you mean by POS. Ah. Sure, uh, delegated. Dele- Tezos was the first like delegation based system. Okay, uh, with like on chain delegation, but not on chain fee distribution. And then we at Cosmos launched with on chain fee distribution. I see. I see. But uh, you know, also Tezos sort of launched in a very different way than we did. Um, to a certain extent, because in 2017, I wanted to work on both growing the Tezos validator community and the Cosmos validator community. Um, but I ended up only having time really to do Cosmos. Um, and so like we diversified our validator set really large way to like a large and very diverse validator set. And it's like, I think it's really cool about our validator set to see like um, the fact that like new entrants like show up in the system all the time. Hmm. Um, and we're, you know, increasing the number of validators in the Cosmos hub tomorrow, um, to 125. Um, uh, this is also not really truly a technical limitation. Like we could be a bigger number, uh, but like, it's hard to pay that many validators. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of, I I think, I think the biggest, the other big shift is just like, we're going to see, like, we're starting to see the maturation of the validator market with like finance coming I find it fascinating that, um, that, I mean, validators are much like miners, uh, just sort of financially motivated to a large degree. So it makes sense, but it's still kind of fascinating to see that they'll validate whatever and, you know, anything that can make money and it makes sense. But, um, what worries me in that world a little bit is you have really big validator shops who set up and like control majority stake in like several networks like there's a few validator shop that hold like massive massive amounts of both tesos cosmos and uh polka dot so it's sort of a little bit worrying that there's so much centralization in the power but at the same time like it's not at the limits where it's actually dangerous right now but if we keep seeing centralization on these like big players then you know, that can potentially turn dangerous. Yeah, I fully agree with you. Totally. I actually wanted to share something that uh, I've just sort of kicked off. 
Uh, there is actually something called the ZK Validator. So myself and Will Harborn from Diversify, we're currently a validator on Cosmos and on Kusama. Yeah, and I, I just learned about it from you. <laughs> I want to throw this your way because I'll tell you what this is all about. So we're using the rewards that we get from being a validator to sort of champion zero-knowledge research, either through initiatives, re- education, the goal being bringing more people into the space and promoting kind of privacy across these different networks that we're going to be validating on. This is, yeah, still very much an experimental phase. I, we haven't really gone public with it, so this might be the first time that people hear about it. It would be the first time I'm speaking about it. Um, yeah, and I, and I wondered what you thought about it. The idea here would be like it's topic-oriented. It's not purely sort of trying to differentiate itself on the low commission or the you know special security setup. It's like actually fund this, and then you could potentially um, help fund zero-knowledge research. I think that is a great idea. Um, I think that like what I've basically been seeing is that there are like three validator business models that are emerging. One validator business model is like a very much like a white glove service for like token holders. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one is, uh, is like um, it's like a combination of like infrastructure plus capital. So like you provide infrastructure on a network, but you're also like, investing or holding tokens or you see this a lot in like validators that are like on the cosmos hub but also like participating in icos of like other cosmos networks um uh or like various token creation stuff for other cosmos networks um and then you have this whole like what i think is an emerging opportunity to be like validator plus product there's also validator plus exchange mm-hmm. uh, which is also going to be like i think a where big do you deal. put where uh, would you put something like sika in that um i think sika hasn't figured out what it wants to be yet ah. um and i think if it doesn't pick one of those models it's not going to survive do you not you don't see a validator as a cause sort of validator with purpose as a possibility I think it does work. I think purpose is just a different word for product. Okay. You put but it in that I think sort of vision. Yeah. Your research, like the idea of like a research community around a validator um, is just a different word for a product. Cool. And uh, inclusion is definitely kind of going down the product route. As well. That's um, your validator. If you, yeah. If you yeah. kind of look at our GitHub, um, you know, we, we don't participate on that many networks, kind of like the zero knowledge validator. We're very selective. Um, we do a little bit of like consulting on a lot of these test nets that people are building. Um, but like, um, you know, we, we, you can, you can look at our GitHub and see a bunch of like product R and D that's sort of percolating through. Cool. Well, listen, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the shows. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to talk to you. Uh, uh, like I said, I listen to these episodes all the time. Um, and so, though I won't listen to my own episode, because, <laughs> it's too uh, much. Listening to your own self, your self talk is the worst punishment imaginable. Well, as podcasters, we who edit ourselves, we get to listen to ourselves a lot. You do get over yeah, it that, eventually. <laughs> that is a hell that I'm, I'm shocked that you could survive. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.